0: If you ask most people, they tell you that they want to be successful. No one wants to fail. Everyone wants to be a success, whether it's in uh, work or uni or school or sport or whatever it is. Uh, we love success stories. All our uh, movies and things are about people who are successes. Especially we love it when they succeed against the odds. That's what we like more than anything else. And Joseph's story, by any measure that you want to use is a story about him succeeding against all odds. That's what it is. That's why they made that musical out of it. They thought this is such a great story and it ticks off all the human interest things because it's a story of success against the odds. I remember seeing a movie a while back. I don't get to see many movies, so I remember the ones I see. Uh, It was The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith in it. Did anyone see that movie? I'm going to spoil it for you if you haven't, so it's not really worth seeing, so don't worry about it. But uh, it's the story of this single father with his young son, and uh, everything goes wrong for this man. You know, you, if, you were sort of, if you put a list of everything that could go wrong, they tick every one of those and then add some more as well. It's, it's sort of that sort of movie. Uh, I think it was based on a true story, but I can't believe that everything happened that did, but apparently it did. But anyway, he gets knocked down wherever he goes. He gets evicted from his home, ends up sleeping in a train station with his son, Uh, He loses his job, he gets another job, he loses that job as well, he gets conned. And as I said, spoiler alert, through his incredible tenacity, through his sheer will to overcome and succeed, he refuses to give, give, give in and so against all the odds he succeeds and he creates a better life for him and his son. And so he finds the happiness he was pursuing all along. And the moral of the movie is... That if you don't give up, if you just keep trying, if you chase your dream, you will succeed. And that is the moral of just about every Hollywood movie. Uh, The problem with that is what? It's just not true for most people, unless you have very, very low-level dreams. If your dream is to go home tonight and eat a sandwich, (laughs) then pursue your dreams and it will be fulfilled Except, you know what, sometimes after church in the bank, all I want to do is go home and have a sandwich, and I go home, and Victoria says, I haven't done the shopping, and there's no bread. (laughs) And so even that low-level dream is not fulfilled. And I have to, you know, have a frozen meat pie or something. But it's what I call the Disney princess gospel. And it's the gospel, lots of people think, is the Christian gospel, the Disney princess gospel, which is follow your dreams, and you will succeed. And it's rubbish. It's just not true. We love pointing out the one or two people where it comes true. For most people, they say, my dreams haven't been fulfilled in life. I've tried hard, but my dreams that I started out with just haven't been fulfilled. And you could, and I've seen it done, you could turn the story of Joseph into that. In fact, that's what the musical does. Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat has its great grand moment where it says, any dream will do. And your dream will come true, and that's what happens for Joseph, and isn't it wonderful? But What I'm hoping is that what we'll see is that the real Joseph story in the Bible uh, is subtly different to the Hollywood stories, and I hope you'll see how in tonight's passage. Now, there are some parts of the Bible that are more like a soap opera than a holy book, they surprise people who don't read the Bible very much when they get to them. Last week's chapter, if you were here, was certainly a bit of a surprise for those who don't know their Bible well. But this chapter that we're looking at today is really one of those sort of soap opera moments. It's one of my great favourite chapters. The story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife is just one of those famous stories. I've been looking forward to preaching on it. So come with me. When we left Joseph back in chapter thirty-seven, do you remember where he was? He was at his lowest of lowest points he'd been abused by his brothers, he'd been sold into slavery, Uh, he was being dragged across the desert when we left him to be sold as a slave in Egypt. And while we're not given the graphic details, you can imagine how horrible that was. So no hope, no support, and you can only imagine the cruelty of ancient slave traders in the ancient world. Really, if ever there was a man with an excuse to just sort of cry out in sort of hopelessness, If ever there was a man who had an excuse to be despairing, who had an excuse to be angry at his brothers, first of all, but then at God as well, it was Joseph. But as we get into the rest of the story, what you see is it seems that Joseph made a decision, an incredible decision as he was led across that desert. It seems he made the decision that no matter what, he would trust God. God had revealed to Joseph in those dreams, remember back in chapter 37, those dreams God gave him, God had revealed to Joseph, you will be great. I will make you great. I will make you the ruler of your people, the ruler of your family. And so Joseph trusted that that would happen, no matter how bad things got. Because as we saw two weeks ago, right through this story, there is not even a hint of hatred in him. There's not even a hint of bitterness in him, not even a hint of anger and, and self-pity. There's not a hint of all the things you would see if you were watching me live out this story. If this was the story of Phil or the, instead of Joseph, and I think probably if it was the story of you instead of Joseph, there'd be all these, why me, God? I haven't done anything wrong. Why do I deserve this? So we know that Joseph was a sinner like us. No one except Christ lives without sin but he is one of the giants of godliness of the whole Bible. In some ways, he's hard to relate to because he is so godly and so often we are not as godly. And so as I said in that first talk, I think you have to be deliberately obtuse. You have to be deliberately blind to not see the way Joseph points forward to Jesus, to not see the way he shows you Jesus in advance, the one who was abandoned by everyone he loved yet did not sin. The one who was sent to his death, but it achieved the salvation of others. The one who, despite his suffering and rejection, would rise up and rule the world. You really have to work hard to not see how Joseph shows you Jesus 2,000 years earlier. But now let's keep going with Joseph. When he was brought to Egypt, look at verse 1, as a slave, he was sold To a man called Potiphar and we meet him in chapter 39 verse 1 and Potiphar was no ordinary Egyptian you see he was an officer of Pharaoh and he was a captain of the guard Uh, he was wealthy and he was important and very very quickly despite being a slave things started to look up for Joseph so look at verse 4 it says Joseph found favor in his master's sight and became his personal attendant Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. So so Joseph was still a slave. So it's not like he's a free man. He's still a slave. But he rose as high as he could go, still being a slave. So he was incredibly successful by anyone's standards. Just as an aside, Joseph is a great example of what godliness in work looks like. If you ever want to say, well, how should I behave in my workplace? Look at the example of Joseph. He was trustworthy and he was hardworking. They are the two things the New Testament calls on us to be if we are going to be godly in our workplace. There's nothing worse than Christians who are known in their workplace to be the slackers and who are known to be the dishonest ones. That dishonors God. God wants us to work hard as if working for the Lord in our work. God wants us to be known for our honesty, to be known for our integrity, just like Joseph was. What you also see is that Joseph's success was not just due to his hard work. So sort of the moral of this story is not, if you work hard and be honest, you will be successful. You're actually going to see the opposite happens. So you can't miss this as you read through it. Look from verse 2. It says, The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made everything he did successful. See, the cause of Joseph's success was not fundamentally his good character. though That is what God used. This is not work hard and God will make you successful. This is about the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. See, even at this lowest point, when Joseph is living as a foreign slave in a land where people worshipped every other god under the sun, and they even worshipped the sun in ancient Egypt, but they did not know the name Yahweh, where he was the one person there who really worshipped the one true God, God was not absent. In fact, more than that, he is at work to fulfill his promises to his people. And so at this point, Joseph, yes, he is still a slave, but he was given enormous privilege and enormous success in the house of Potiphar. He was basically in control of everything. And Potiphar benefited enormously from this. Look at verse 5. It says, From the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptians' house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned, in his house and in his fields. This is a really, really important concept to understand in the Old Testament. Do you remember how I said there's one chapter, back when we looked at chapter 37, there's one chapter in the Bible you need to understand if you're going to understand the rest of the Old Testament. What was that chapter? Testing, whether you were listening. What was that chapter where God makes the promises to Abraham? Genesis 12. You need to understand Genesis 12. you You're going to understand anything that follows. And what were those promises that God made to Abraham? He said to him, I'm going to give you or your descendants what? A land, blessings and descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. But he said something else as well. He said, I'm not just going to bless you and your descendants, Abraham. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And the way that's going to happen is I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Well, this is that working out. The reason Potiphar was being blessed, the reason he became a wealthy man, was because of his treatment of Joseph, his treatment of God's promised people. Ultimately, it's interesting, we like to look at it and see ourselves as Joseph in the story. But unless you're a Jewish person, you're more like Potiphar. I'm more like Potiphar. See, understand this. We are like Potiphar. See, it is by our blessing of Jesus, the greatest descendant of Abraham, that we are blessed. That is how blessing came out beyond the Jews, beyond Joseph's family, to people like us here, if you're not Jewish. You see, not in a material way like Potiphar, but in spiritual blessing. It is as we trust in Christ that we receive every spiritual blessing from God. But back to Joseph. At this point, Joseph has gone from the pit to, if not the penthouse, he's certainly in a sort of a nice house in the suburbs, if that's a metaphor that helps. But it's not going to last because there's bad news at the end of verse 6. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was well built and handsome. Whenever you see that phrase in the Bible, you know bad stuff is about to happen. Because that's the Bible's way of saying Joseph The image I used this morning was probably not as helpful here. I said Joseph was like a mixture of Brad Pitt and George Clooney, but they're both like 55-year-old men, (laughs) so not that helpful. And I don't know who the equivalents are. People came up to me and said he's like a mixture of Chris Hemsworth and Henry Cavill, but I don't know who they are, so I don't know if that's helpful or not. It's probably really unhelpful. Anyway, don't worry about it. You get my point. It's funny, though. It's like he was too handsome. Beauty is a bit like wealth. Too much actually creates more problems. Certainly that's been my experience in life. (laughs) Why do you laugh? What's wrong with you? You people are so unkind. (laughs) But I'm serious. External beauty is as much a curse for godliness as anything else. You see, be wary of the lure of the gym. Be wary of the lure of makeup and nice clothes and all that sort of thing, because healthiness and looking good can very quickly become vanity. But Joseph wasn't vain. His problem was actually, and this is very serious, he was too good looking. And so he had temptations that other men did not have, because all the women desired him. So verse 7, It says, after some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. Now, understand the reality of the temptation here. Joseph was between 18 and 20. That's how old he was. His hormones were racing and sexual immorality was just a normal part of life in ancient Egypt and especially for slaves because they were owned by their masters and their masters could do whatever they want with them. And this would actually, if Joseph was thinking about it, could help him advance further because he would be Mrs Potiphar's favourite and she'd be putting a good word for him in all the time. On the other side, though, not doing what she wanted, a word from her and he could be turfed out. In any event, no one was watching, so who was getting hurt? It's very, very easy to rationalise and justify sin, especially sexual sin. But Joseph didn't do that. Joseph refused her advances, and I want to look at his reasons. Look at verse 8. It says, but he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? See, one of the true marks of godliness, in fact, I think the true mark, the true mark of godliness, is faithfulness. Joseph said to her, your husband, my master, has put this incredible trust on me. How could I abuse that? He has rewarded me for my faithfulness. How could I breach it now? Brothers and sisters, godliness means being people of our word. If you are not trustworthy... If your yes is not yes and your no is not no, you are not faithful. And that is dishonoring to God. People of God must be faithful, not just sexually, but in any way. When our yes is not yes and our no is not no, when people cannot bank on our word, we dishonor God and the gospel. Joseph is a true hero of faithfulness. But more than that, do you see that last bit? at the end of verse 9. Look at the end of verse 9. The other reason he would not do it was because he knew that all sin in the end is sinning against God. And he knew that even if no one else ever saw it, God saw it. You see, Joseph knew he had to be faithful to Potiphar, yes, but far more important than that was being faithful to God. And it's the same for us. And Joseph didn't just deal with the temptation once. It says there that day after day, she propositioned him over and over again. And that is what sin is like, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I say no to sin this morning. And then I've got to say no to sin this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow morning and next week and next year. And it never ends. It's not like suddenly, oh, there's no temptation anymore, especially in the area of sexual sin. See, and how much more for us in the modern world where every billboard we drive past and every website And every movie we see and every TV show is designed to tempt us. See, this is going beyond this passage, but this is why we need to be grounded in the word of God and prayer and in regular Christian fellowship. Because that is the spiritual armour. Those three things are the spiritual armour God has given us to enable us to say no to temptation. See, Otherwise, how will we ever have the strength to keep saying no? I despair when I see Christians who go out into our world that is full of temptations and they don't put on the very simple spiritual armour that God has given us. They don't spend time regularly in the Word. They don't spend time regularly in prayer. And they don't spend time regularly meeting with brothers and sisters in Christ to be encouraged and to encourage one another. How will we ever have the strength to keep saying no if we don't do that? But for Joseph... One day things came to a head. Mrs. Potiphar arranged everything to get rid of everyone else out of the house and she got Joseph alone. And then verse 12, she grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. Whenever I read this, I just have this vivid picture of Joseph just fleeing, just running and her standing there with sort of the ripped coat in her hand. And that is what smart people do with temptation. This is such an important thing. It sounds like cowardice, but smart people run from temptation. I never cease to be amazed by the stupidity or the willful sinfulness of Christians who go and say, I know I struggle with this sin but I'm just going to walk on in there and put myself in temptation's way. I know I struggle with drinking and drunkenness, but I'm going to go out to the pub on a Saturday night with my non-Christian mates. I, I, I know I struggle with pornography, but I'm going to sit up late at night on my own on the internet. What do you think going to happen? I know I struggle with sexual temptation, but I'm going to go away on a holiday with my boyfriend or girlfriend without anyone else there to keep us accountable. Do not put yourself into situations where you know you are going to be tempted. Run from them. Right through the New Testament, there are calls to flee from sin, flee from idolatry, and especially flee from sexual immorality. Jesus goes further. Jesus says, don't just flee, gouge out your eye if it's causing you to sin. Cut off your hand if it's causing you to sin. That's how serious it is. That's the precautionary measures you should take. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. In 1 Timothy 6, he's talking about all sorts of ungodliness and he says, but you man of God run from these things. And I think he had this picture, I think he's just been reading Genesis 39, when he wrote those verses I think that's probably what he had in his head as sort of the worked example this is what I want you to do brothers and sisters in Christ when you're faced with temptation follow Joseph run for the door get away from it but as Joseph ran Mrs Potiphar grabbed his garment and he left it in her hands and at that point to protect herself or or out of anger she frames Joseph And I love the way she blames her husband while she's framing Joseph. She says, look, this Hebrew slave who you brought into the house has abused me. Look, this Hebrew slave has tried to attack me and sleep with me. And he even left his garment behind when I screamed. And what could Potiphar do with that? I think he probably knew his wife. I think he knew his wife was lying because otherwise, why didn't he have him put to death? In the ancient world, if you tried to rape your, your, your master's wife, you would be put to death. But Potiphar puts him in prison. And I think that's possibly him sort of saying, I know what my wife is like, but I have to do this. But in any event, that's just me guessing. What's he going to do? And so poor Joseph, who'd got out of the pit, is now back down an even worse pit. We've seen Egyptian prisons on the news recently. It's an Australian journalist who's been in an Egyptian prison. Well, imagine what they were like 4,000 years ago, if that's bad today. And again, this is a reminder to us that godliness is not always rewarded in this life. Sometimes people think, if I'm godly and faithful, God will give me an easy life. Actually, that's not the case. And this is an example of it. Godliness and faithfulness are rewarded in the new creation. And sometimes now, but not always now. And in fact, godliness will often cost us. The apostle Peter says that even as you live good lives among the pagans, they will accuse you of doing wrong. So sometimes as we're faced with that, when we think, well, if I do the right thing, people will hate me. If I act in a godly way, people will shun me. If I act in a godly way, people won't like me. So often we are tempted to compromise rather than to stand firm to compromise rather than face the consequences of being godly. The Bible, and sadly, the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, is full of people who compromised when the heat gets turned up. But That's why Joseph is so wonderful and such a wonderful example. He doesn't compromise. He's a hero of the faith. If I can just take a minute away from the passage we are entering a time where we will feel that temptation more and more in our country. Until recently in Australia, the morals of our country were basically in line with God's morals, were basically in line with the Bible's morality. Didn't mean people's hearts were changed, didn't mean they were godly. Godliness is different to morality. Godliness is about where you put your trust and where you put your faith. But at the very least, public morality was basically based on Christian values. That is not the case anymore. Over the last 20 or 30 years, people have said, I want the right to live differently. And so that's happened over the last 20 or 30 years. People have said, don't apply the Bible's morality to me and our legal situation. But now it's gone even further than that. Now people don't just deny the Bible's morality for themselves. They want to say the Bible's morality is evil. has only happened in the last five or ten years in Australia where people have gone from saying I just don't want it to apply to me to saying actually I think the Bible is evil and so you see it at the moment with this debate over SRE in schools if you follow any of the websites or anything like that people get up there and they say if you teach that children are sinners who need salvation that is child abuse because you are damaging the most important thing for a child which is their self-esteem because they mightn't fulfill their dreams if you don't tell them they're the most wonderful thing that God has ever invented on the face of the earth. But you see the point, it's moved from I disagree with you to actually Christians, your morality is evil. See, telling people that they are sinners is now immoral. Even as we say, but I'm a sinner too. I'm not just pointing you out. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying all humanity, we're all sinners. They say that is immoral because all people are good. We we see it in the whole gay marriage debate, don't we? The whole same-sex marriage thing, where it's moved, where now if you say that homosexuality is wrong, you are evil. Your point of view is evil. So the leader of the opposition in our federal parliament over the last couple of weeks has said, I don't want there to be a public debate. I don't want there to be a, a yes or no vote where the public get a say on gay marriage because I don't think people should have the right to speak against it. Because that is wrong and harmful for people. See, that is the country we now live in. If you want to think more about that issue of gay marriage and so forth, you can listen to the talks we did last year. But you see, what do you say now when those issues come up around your dinner table? What do you say when those issues come up in your workplace or with me, with non-Christian family, in your family discussions at Christmas time? The temptation is to remain silent. But worse than that, the temptation is to compromise. To say, yeah, I know some Christians say that, but not me. Because I don't want you to hate me. I don't want you to not like me. I'd rather you like me and compromise. The temptation is enormous, isn't it? If you don't feel that temptation, you're living in a different world to the one I live in. We need to remember, though, what Jesus said in Matthew 5:11. It's on your outline. Take it out with me. Jesus said you are blessed when they insult you. You are blessed when they persecute you, when they falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. You're not blessed when they insult you because you're a loudmouth, obnoxious fool. You are blessed when they insult you because you are standing firm for God's word. You are blessed when they persecute you because you are standing firm for Christ. Or Matthew ten twenty two, he says, "You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered." See, it shouldn't surprise us, friends. It shouldn't surprise us. See, Joseph, like our Lord, who he points us to, is an example to us. Let's be people of faithfulness, not people of compromise, whatever the cost. So here is Joseph. He's back in the pit. And again, the temptation would be to cry out, God, I've been faithful. What are you doing for me? Why me? So I want to finish by just asking quickly, how could Joseph stay faithful through all these trials? How could he not compromise? I think there's two related reasons, two related things that he knew. And the first is there in that final part of the passage. Look from verse 21. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph. It said that when he became a slave and it says it now as he's cast into prison. The Lord was with Joseph. Even in prison, at his lowest ebb, God is with him. And while we don't hear it from Joseph's lips, we don't hear it till the end of the story anyway. That's the truth that he knew. He trusted that God was with him. And we need to know that too, don't we? Too often, we Christians... We allow our current circumstances to decide how close we feel to God. We say When we're going through times of suffering, we say, I just don't feel like God is near me. I feel like God is distant. Our feelings and our circumstances are a terribly unreliable guide. We need to take a hold of the truth that God is with us, whatever happens to us. And how much more should we know that than Joseph know that? Frankly, I find Joseph's faith amazing. I think he is one of the most amazing people in the Bible because he was so faithful with so little knowledge. He knew so little compared to what we know. We know Jesus. What does Jesus' name mean? God saves. But in the Christmas story, they give him another name, don't they? What's the other name they give him? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. In Matthew 1, they say, and you'll know him by the name Emmanuel. What does that name mean? God with us. That's who we worship. That's who we know. God with us. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is ascending to sit at his Father's right hand, he says to his disciples and to us, he says, But I tell you, I am with you always until the very end of the age if you are someone who trusts in Jesus, God is with you. No matter how you feel, no matter what you're facing, God is with you. Through Jesus, by his spirit, he is with you. And that is the most wonderful promise for anyone who trusts in Jesus. But even knowing that, I still think, how did Joseph keep going? There was something more. See, Joseph trusted God wasn't just with him but that God was faithful to his promises. See, God had promised all those years ago, you will be raised up, Joseph. You will be a ruler one day. And whatever the circumstances, Joseph knew, if I just wait, God will make it happen. God will be faithful. And again, I want to say to you, if you know Jesus, how much more wonderful are the promises that he has given you and the promises he gave Joseph. See, you know that by Jesus' death you have been forgiven for your sins. You know that one day Jesus has said, I will return to judge the living and the dead and on that day I will raise you from the dead and I will bring you into my new creation, a place where there is no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears and no more death and no more sin. That is the promise God has made to you. That's what we look forward to. And is knowing that that enables Christians to keep going when we face suffering and pain. It's knowing that that enables us to stand firm and not give up when hard things happen and when people make fun of us and when people hate us. The story of the last 2,000 years is full of people who went back on their word. The story of the church is sad in so many ways. It's full of people who've compromised. But it's also full of people who have said, I would rather die than deny Jesus. I would rather die than compromise. At our men's night last week, we heard about William Tyndale. Who's heard of William Tyndale? If you haven't heard of William Tyndale, go home tonight and just Google William Tyndale and just read his story on Wikipedia. You see, he was burnt at the stake and he went there willingly to die. And he was burnt for translating the Bible into English so that other people could hear God's word and understand it. See, he was willing to die rather than compromise. And it's still happening today. Today in the Middle East, you don't hear about it as much as you should in our news stories. Today in the Middle East, ISIS is calling on Christians, convert from Christianity or be killed. And many, many people have stood up and said, I would rather die than deny the name of Jesus, and they have been killed for their faith. It's not just something that happened 500 years ago. More people were martyred for standing firm for the gospel in the last 100 years than in the previous 1900 combined. Did you know that? Throughout the whole world. And how do they do that? How could they ever do that? How would we ever do that? It's because like Joseph, they believe that God is faithful to his promises. And they believe that nothing in this present world, not anything good and not anything bad, nothing in this world can compare to what God has in store for those who love Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you tonight these two questions. And I want to ask you now before you face any suffering. Many of you have faced suffering. I'm not belittling that. But I want to ask you now before you face suffering again. Because now is the time to get it right. Do you believe with Joseph that in Christ Jesus, God is with you, whatever happens to you? Do you believe that? I pray you do. You're allowed to say it out loud too, by the way. Do you believe it? Do you believe that in Jesus, God is with you, whatever happens to you? And do you believe with Joseph that God is faithful to his promises? Do you believe that? I pray you do. Because if we do... And that will mean with Joseph and with our Lord Jesus, we will be people of faithfulness. Let's, let it be said about us in years to come. They are people who are faithful. They are people who refuse to compromise whatever happened because they are people who know Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful encouragement the story of Joseph is. And, Father, even if we sometimes question whether we would ever be as godly as he was, we pray that you will give us his faithfulness. Help us to never lose sight of the fact that in Jesus you are with us always. And help us to never lose sight of the fact that what we have to look forward to when Christ returns makes anything, good or bad, in this present world pale into insignificance. So, Father, we pray for each of us here that we would be people of faithfulness people who refuse to compromise and people who never turn aside from trusting in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.